0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: We are delighted to have Dr. Mark Chivalis back on the broadcast. Dr. Chivalis, pedigree is long. I just looked up your CV and it was 39 pages and it wasn't updated since 2014, Doc, so you got some work to do, brother. (laughs)
2: I suppose so.
1: In addition to teaching world history, courses on ancient Mesopotamia, Iraq, Egypt, Israel, Turkey, Iran, before Islam, Syria, Greece, Rome, women in the ancient world. He has taught semesters of the Akkadian. Do you read Akkadian? Yeah, that was my primary specialty in school. Wow. Two semesters of the Sumerian language, his research in the past decades centers on the interconnectedness with ancient Mesopotamia and outlying areas we would call Anatolia, Aegean, Iran, Egypt, Syria, palestine and even the Adriatic. He's also focused on gender constructs in the ancient Near East and Mesopotamian historiography. His current research is in the Bronze Age. And I'll stop there because I would read this and we would waste all our time not getting the pearls from Dr. (laughs) Chivalis. But we found you through the Logos Mobile Ed programs. And just to encourage you, your interview is getting great response and great activity. So we went back and said, who are the men and women we need to go back and ask for help? And so uh, we appreciate your past ministry with us, and we look forward to talking to you today about the book of Obadiah. So thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Well, let's jump in. Obadiah, the shortest of the minor prophets. As I understand the book, and you may well correct me, the 21 verses are in some way feature of the story of two Jewish brothers. Is that correct?
2: Well, I suppose ultimately they are. Obviously, anybody who's reading the book of Obadiah from the ancient world would understand that when a Hebrew writer is writing about Edom, they're certainly talking about the original ancestor Esau, who was connected, of course, to Israel itself. And so they would have that in the back of their mind when they were they were reading this. Oh, the Edomites, they're our relatives in the same way that if they were when there's a judgment against Moab or against Ammon, they would say, Oh yes, those are our relatives through Lot, another ancestor, you know, related to Abraham etc. Edom, of course, will be even more closely related in their mindset. Now, this idea, I think, though it's there in the background, it probably doesn't pervade their immediate concern any more than if you were talking about or interacting with Canadians, you probably wouldn't bring up over and over again, oh, by the way, the Canadians were on the other side
1: of the Revolutionary War. Let me get the question. So as we think sure. about Esau being parallel to the Edomites, and Jacob parallel to the Israelites. One of the questions, and you've answered this almost completely now, is would the current reader in Obadiah's time and going forward understand this history?
2: Yeah, they certainly would understand it, but I would say that it wasn't on their immediate concern. All they know is that Edom, our close relatives, are doing us very wrong, and so rightfully so in their mind, God is going to judge them.
1: If my memory is correct, about 99 times in the Old Testament, Edom is referred to, and almost always in a negative light. Does that sound remotely accurate to you?
2: I would say that the negative part is certainly true. Edom, Moab, and Ammon are almost always portrayed in, in negative lights, especially in the prophetic utterances.
1: So for example, Ezekiel thirty five, fifteen, as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it, then they will know that I am the Lord.
2: Yes, and that's just one snippet. It's through so many of the prophets. Obviously we have later ones like Jeremiah, in fact uh, Jeremiah forty nine almost duplicates exactly what we have in the first nine chapters of Obadiah. As a historian, I'm really interested in trying to figure out you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg here, and there's no answer to it. And it doesn't even help us give us a clue as to when Obadiah might have been written or the context to which it is describing the problem with Edom, which I think you'll probably want to ask me about, I'm
1: sure, in a second here. Well, you teed it up. Let's go there.
2: Okay, well, here's the problem. Of the 12 Minor Prophets, and by the way, the order of the Minor Prophets seems to be sort of chronological, except when it isn't. Right. And <laughs> and I, by the way, I think there's nothing particularly divinely inspired about the order of the books. Of course, I'm sure you know the Christian version of the Old Testament has a different order to the books than the Hebrew version. Sure. And the Minor Prophets seem to be roughly in order. But I think Obadiah is a problem. In the Jewish tradition, Obadiah, at least with some of the rabbis, since there's an Obadiah mentioned as a an official of Ahab, which would be in the eight hundreds BC. Right. And so they argue that Obadiah would have been written in the eight hundreds BC. However, there's nothing going on as far as we can tell there might have been Edom might have been mentioned as a kingdom once in there, but the context for The book itself appears to be around the time of the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, which would be at the beginning of the sixth century in the 590s and the 580s. The problem is, I think I've mentioned before, you know, the biblical text is giving us a lot of answers, but sometimes we're asking the wrong questions, or at least we're asking questions that it's not interested in answering. And so the first question might be who was Obadiah and when did he write? And the writer assumes that we know all those things because it's writing for a contemporary audience.
1: Let, let me interrupt there for a moment because this is a great Bible study method, you know tool if you will when we're reading scripture and you've mentioned this before you know it may not answer some of the questions we have but part of our job as a student of scripture is to understand what god meant by this in the context in which it was written and how we understand it in the let's say the immediate story and larger story and then i don't want to principalize and create new law but how do we understand these timeless truths that scripture teaches
2: Yes, exactly right. And so that's the problem that we have. As long as we, I suppose, because of my being a historian, I'm a little nervous about being dogmatic about any particular one of my conclusions, and especially with something like Obadiah. It just looks to me like Obadiah is probably composed, or the prophetic oracles are set in the context of the fall of Jerusalem. Now, since it's only 19, you know, 20 verses or so, 21 verses, I also don't know when it was organized and put together, and in fact, we'll discuss this even more with the book of Micah. And I suppose I can glibly say, whoever organized it, if it wasn't Obadiah, it was somebody that was divinely inspired by God who doesn't have a name. <laughs> and so, I know that doesn't necessarily always sit well with us as evangelicals, but I think it sometimes... We have to look outside the box a little bit to try to figure out some of these things. Now, there are some hints to me about the text and what's going on outside. For example, if I tried to write a history of Edom, and let's say I tried to write a history of Edom without even knowing anything from the Bible, I could do it, but it wouldn't be very long. It might be about five pages, by the way. We do have Edom mentioned in Outside Sources, and they're exclusively Assyrian and Babylonian. Now, just to put a larger context to this, is that the Assyrian Empire was able to dominate the entire Near East, beginning sometime around the beginning of the ninth century, down to around almost precisely 612 BC, when Nineveh was taken. Of course, the Book of Nahum describes that, and we now have outside sources talking about that very thing, and so they roughly correspond to what Nahum says about that. But the Assyrian Empire is on the entire horizon of this whole region until 612, when it was spectacularly destroyed, and in that power vacuum came two superpowers. One is the Median Kingdom, which basically stays pretty much in present-day Iran for the time being, and in the northern and in Zero-Palestine, the power vacuum was filled in by two powers, the Chaldean kingdom of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is the son of the founder of that. Nabopolassar was his name, Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, I'm sure your readers will be impressed by this, but Nebuchadnezzar happens to be Nebuchadnezzar the second. If they want to be snooty, and somebody says, oh, who's Nebuchadnezzar? And you have to say, oh, the first or the second. Well, the famous one is the second one, by the way. His namesake actually ruled a half a millennium earlier, and Nebuchadnezzar would have been well aware of his namesake. The other kingdom was Egypt to the south, and we know from a Babylonian chronicle, which was uncovered in the mid-19th century, that the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, which was the particular dynastic group that was ruling at that time, was able to extract the Egyptians out of Syro-Palestine, leaving them as the primary power broker in that region. And All these little minor kingdoms, including the small kingdom of Judah, which had survived somehow the Assyrian threat, and Edom, Moab, and Ammon were all evidently singular principalities which were tributary to the now newly formed superpower, the Chaldean kingdom. We do not have any particular mention of the Edomites in any text from Nebuchadnezzar, but the last ruler of that kingdom, Nabonidus, who ruled from about 556 to 539, there are a couple of mansions of Edom in their inscriptions. And this By would way, be
1: later the Nabataeans, correct?
2: Well, no, the Nabataeans are a good deal later. But that's uh, for
1: the etymology the word comes from, correct? they are sect of Arabs, if I understand correctly.
2: The Nabataeans are probably proto-Arabs, yes. Okay. Okay. As far as we can tell, they have nothing to do with the term Nabonidus. Nabonidus oh, okay. is the last Babylonian okay. king. Okay,
1: that was my question. All right.
2: Yes, and Nabonidus. By the way, I'm giving you the Hellenized version of his name. I won't even bother you with the Babylonian I appreciate original, that. but uh, yeah. <laughs> but, That's um, Nebuchadnezzar but, III, by I, the way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, there are I know. there are a couple more Nebuchadnezzars who, when the Persians took over, there were a couple of pretenders who tried to retake Babylon and have a nationalistic rule. And so there's actually Nebuchadnezzar 3 and 4, and I'm sure your readers will be thrilled to know that. Uh, it'll but, keep um, them
1: awake at night. I want to jump forward, Doc. Yeah. I want to jump forward to sure. the text proper. And just to summarize, there's a lot of scholarly debate on who is the author and the time frame, whether it's in the 840 BC ish or the 586 BC ish. And you've made a good argument for the 586 under Nebuchadnezzar. And that would be the Babylonian time when Jerusalem is actually, I would say we have much more information on that one, but at any rate, let's get to the text. Some of the major themes in these 21 verses from your take, I have a list of mine, but I'm curious what the expert thinks.
2: Well, it's, sort of hard when you have twenty verses to find a multiplicity of themes. Obviously the primary theme is the fact that Edom is going to be judged for what they've done. And of course here we are looking backwards thinking, well what did they do? You really aren't killing us very much. And there's a couple of hints here and there that they must have done, you know, something to Jerusalem or must have, you know, been complicit with the destruction of Jerusalem. But they're hardly telling us anything about that. And so as a historian, I have to try to reconstruct that. Think about it, especially in terms of personal application. This is a really hard nut to crack. First of all, the book doesn't appeal to our religious sensibilities as evangelical Christians, because it really is talking about territorial concerns and the fact that Israel is going to reclaim land that the Edomites took from them, etc. But I think in the long run, we have to realize that this is precisely the type of promise that God gave them, you know, from Moses on down, that each of the tribes would get a certain plot of land, and that was going to be something— in fact, this was a contract that God made with them. In fact, we've actually found dozens and dozens of ancient contracts between usually powerful states and lesser states, which are almost identical to what we have in the Mosaic Covenant, especially Deuteronomy which tells us that it fits perfectly in a very nice context. And so land is really, really important to them. And so the fact that God is promising them that those who have despoiled you, who have ruined you, either taken your land or been complicit in your destruction, they're going to be judged for what they've done. And I suppose we can see the same hope with us, you know, even living in our modern world. The fact that things are unfair and happen to people unjustly, and I don't even have to imagine any type of injustice because it's everywhere, God's going to make it right one way or another. And so here's one more piece of that puzzle to show that God is acting today the same that he did, you know, 2,500 years ago. If you're a people group that decides to spoil another people group, especially the ones that God had chosen to give the oracles to, you're going to be judged for it. In fact, with that in mind, this Nabonidus fellow that I just talked about, we have a rock inscription of Nabonidus that was found in present-day Edom. It's very fragmentary, but he's simply mentioning something about the fact that he's taken this area over. We know that Nabonidus, in Mesopotamian records, decided to go from Babylon and go into the middle of the Arabian Desert, where he spent a dozen years there. And we know that his son was then, in a sense, the provisional ruler of Babylon. You'll know his son very well, by the way, because the book of Daniel calls him the king. His name in Mesopotamian lingo is Belshazzar, Belshazzar. although the book of Daniel mentions nothing about Nabonidus, he doesn't need to. That would be like me talking about how You know, Vice President Pence is, you know, dealing with our virus, and I don't mention our president. Well, everyone knows who the president is. Why do I have to mention him every time we bring him up? One other issue is that in the Judean city of Arad, which is west of the Dead Sea, was a Judean fortress. We've actually found a series of letters, interestingly enough, that shed light. Um, These are letters of military correspondence. They were excavated by Israeli archaeologists in the 60s, by the way. And one of them is really interesting. The letter itself is dated rather precisely to 597, which is the date that Nebuchadnezzar came and took Jerusalem by storm. He didn't destroy the city at that time. He destroyed it a decade later. But this letter, I'll read a portion of a letter from Arad. The writer says, Your son Gemar Yahu and Neme Yahu sends greeting to Malki Yahu, who is probably their military superior. I bless you by Yahweh. Your servant has applied himself to what you've ordered. I'm writing to you, my lord. Everything that the man has wanted, we don't know what they're talking about yet. But then he says, Ashi Yahu has come for you, but he's not given them any men. You know the reports from Edom. I sent them, my lord, before evening. Then he says, the king of Judah should be told that we are unable to send broken, broken. So I don't know what they're sending, probably troops or supplies. And this is the evil that the Edomites have done. So you put that together with a couple of things. For example, in Second Kings 24, it mentions the fact that Edom seems to be complicit in the conquest of Jerusalem later on. That Edom is probably, when Jerusalem decided to rebel against Babylon it looks as if some of the other local satellite states decided not to rebel, and in fact, they did just the opposite. They were complicit in trying to stop the rebellion. In fact, if you look at what the Edomites do, interestingly enough, I'm sure if you would have had the Edomite description of what they did and why they did it, they would have said, well, we're under contract. We have a loyalty oath with Babylon to stay with them. You folks were against them, and in the loyalty oath, it says something like this. Babylon will help you when you're being besieged. If Babylon is attacking another kingdom, you will send troops to help us. And so the Edomites, I'm sure, are thinking, we're just doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. So from their standpoint, they're doing the right thing. But of course, Obadiah is judging them. Now, I'm going to anticipate another question that you might have, and that would be, well, who is Obadiah writing to? Certainly not the Edomites, they're not going to be listening to this. I doubt if Obadiah went all the way down into the uh, deserts and into Mount Seir and (laughs) rolled up his scroll and said, hey, hey folks, I got a really bad message for you from the God of Israel. Now, he's doing it for the Judeans at that point, basically saying, you know, this has happened, and you folks are quite hurt by this, but they're going to be judged for this terrible thing that they've done
1: some of the recurring themes through prophetic literature in general, and you know these ideas of the day of the Lord, the day, these programs that we are attracted to. And we do have in the book of Obadiah some of these references, especially in the midpoint of the book, many Bibles use a sort of an intermediary title, the day of the Lord and the future, the day of the Lord draws near for all the goyim, the nations, 1 verse 15, yeah. as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head because just as you yeah. drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. And then to me, Doc, the interesting Mount Zion reference, because this is the center of Israel's worship. I mean, from Abraham and the offer of Isaac to the temple complex, to Christ's return, to Christ's ministry, so many images we have, both geographically and theologically, on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions, then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame but the house of Esau stubble and they will set yes. them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau so it's a terrible message even for whether it's Judah or Israel's a primary hearer And then we have to envision these messages, of course, did translate for other people groups, obviously. But the long game hope for this, as I'm teaching through these books, one of the things I'm learning and trying to remind our folks is these people who heard this did not see this. They didn't see the outcome. They didn't live to see the outcome. And it strikes me, they had to live by faith just like we do. And yet, justice is a two-edged sword, is it not? It cuts to administer punishment in order to administer mercy. You can't have a one-edged judgment. So the bad news is for Edom, the Edomites and those against Israel, and you can lump the Assyrians in there and all the Middle Eastern groups that hated Yahweh and hated Israel. But the good glimmer of hope is what, Doc? Well, the
2: good glimmer of hope, I think, that is for the Christian, I think, is really, if you think about it, no different than the hope that we have. What do we have as hope? We have the hope of our complete restoration to God. Our resurrection is our hope. It's something that has not happened to us. We are expecting it to happen in the future. Why? Because of God's character. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 7:25, where it, it describes Christ is being able to save us in the the old King James is the uttermost, of course. And so, you know, at that point, I think that, you know, the principle in Obadiah in particular is really no different, is that, first of all, God will judge our enemies. Secondly, you know, those of us who are following Yahweh will be redeemed from it in some future way, although we just don't know when, we don't know where. This whole idea of the day of the Lord which of course is never explained to us. There's no manual telling us what the day of the Lord is, but if you put all the things together and try to, you know, make some sort of analysis out of it, which people have done, you have to assume there must be some sort of judgment where God is going to make things right. Is this a one-time deal or is it a continual deal Is the issue. In other words, people will often be concerned: well, was there a historical context to this? Is there also a prophetic, futuristic context to it? And I suppose my answer is yes.
1: Yes, (laughs) I knew Uh, you were going to say that. (laughs) Let me interrupt again and ask Mark. One of the things I'm attracted to, again, as I study this, it ends with this reference to the kingdom will be the Lord's. And I often remind folks. Second Samuel 7, you should have memorized, if not the first 17 verses, at least you should understand this messianic promise that begins very clearly here. And let me just read a part of it. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And it goes on, my loving kindness shall not depart from him. Your house, verse 16, and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. And then, of course, we have a divided kingdom, the monarchy, a divided kingdom. We have you know, many, almost 50-50 between the northern and southern kingdoms, 38 of them of the 40 are evil or do evil. So we have this ongoing failure of kings. We end this very short minor prophet, the kingdom will be the Lord's. And then my mind jumps all the way. And again, I love your input on this. I'm prattling a bit, but my mind jumps all the way to the prophetic word that Mary receives in the birth announcement from Gabriel in chapter one of Luke. In particular, the last part of this comment, it says, he will reign over the house of Jacob which i find fascinating that he calls it the house mm. of Jacob and his kingdom will have no end. And so here's this teenage girl that we presume a pious devout Jew understood enough of her history to understand second Samuel chapter 7 this davidic kingdom was going to be forever and then of course she says you know how can this be and so forth but her final response is you know let it be done to me according to your word, so I just would love your take on the kingdom because I find it striking that we have this Mount Zion reference a couple of times in the book. There's some secondary references, my holy mountain, etc. But then it ends; the kingdom will be the Lord's.
2: Well, and that's certainly true. In fact, if you look at the end of the text, you know, which is interesting to me, verse 20, it starts talking about the exiles yes. returning, and well, in order for them to return, they had to have been exiled. And so where are they? They're all over the place. I mean, you know, they're among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, which is somewhere up near Tyre and Sidon. And then the next one is really hard to figure out. The Sepharad, most people think it's probably connected to Sardis way up in Lydia, where we know that there are Jewish exiles there at some point, but that's a very, very early date for that. And so I think what the writer's doing there is he's probably thinking of the farthest places that he can think of, that right. there there are Jewish exiles, and then down to the Negev, etc. So they're all going to return someday. And of course, this is a common theme throughout the minor prophets, that at one point or another, they're going to return, Esau is going to be judge, and the Lord will be the rightful ruler, which he should have been from the very beginning of all kingdoms, not just Israel. And of course, Mount Zion will be the centerpiece of all of this. And of course, we have to realize much of this, and by the way, the last three verses don't appear to be, they're not entirely poetic, and they're not entirely narrative. They seem to be something that is sort of in between. But in any event, we do have to realize that we have to evaluate poetry the same way that we evaluate poetry today. Sometimes the way that the message is brought and the hyperbole and other things that are brought up causes us to stop and ask the question, you know, what are they talking about? And, of course, that doesn't necessarily always help. There's certainly something rather specific here is that Israel is going to be redeemed at some point, both the northern and southern kingdom. The exiles are return, and the way that God had planned the kingdom to be will be done, though there's no particular message of Messiah here, it's certainly implicit in that. And the fact that Obadiah doesn't bring the Messiah up is really rather irrelevant if you think about it. We've got you know a whole 21 verses here. We can't expect everything to be brought up you know, by each prophet. That's why we have each of the prophets.
1: Let me read a quote from Michael Van Lanningham and get your comment or opinion on it. He says, it is sure. a literal geopolitical kingdom in which there was a ruling king replete with authority that has exercised over a literal people and a literal land. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, not because it exists only in heaven, but because it will come to earth from heaven. Well,
2: I can't argue with that. I look at it this way, when we're in glory looking back, we're probably going to look at our interpretations and say, well, we could have done a better job. (laughs) It's not exactly like we thought. But my uh, rule of thumb is I'm going to take things literally if I can't figure anything else out. You know, I know we're not doing Jonah here, but that, of course, is a minefield for that. But the point is that, you know, Though I'm looking at poetry, I have to try to discern what the mind of the writer is thinking, and certainly they're thinking about a literal kingdom. That's the whole point of most of the minor prophets, is that God's going to judge you, but there will be a remnant that will be restored. And when they talk about that restoration, it's in the real concrete land. I mean, if you think about it, if I'm an average Israelite, I don't want to leave my land because uh, grandpa and grandma are buried underneath, and their ancestors are buried underneath them, In fact, there's sort of a strange perversion in some respects with the Mesopotamian ideal that you actually had to take care of your ancestors because they were still conscious, even though they were dead, and they didn't get around very well any longer. They still need food and sustenance. And I think there's hints of that when you think of Joseph talking to his descendants in the end of the book of Genesis, he basically says you know, someday God's going to cause you to leave this land of Egypt and return to the land that God promised you. When that happens, make sure my bones go with you. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he's simply saying that in terms of a sensibility like, "Yeah, I'd like to make sure that I get buried under a nice tree. It's, no, I might have a consciousness. I think there was a, you know, they had not been given much of a revelation of what the difference of life and death, of the fact of what happened after death was very, very unclear. In fact, the last place I would go to understand the concept of the afterlife in the Bible would be the book of Job. First of all, it's poetic. Secondly, it's usually being something being described by some of Job's friends who've got bad theology.
1: Right. (laughs) Okay, Mark, give us your landing. When you read the book of Obadiah and you think of men and women studying this book, what's sort of the, if you will, the lesson, the application, the key teaching you think we should draw from this?
2: Well, I think I'll probably have to summarize a few things that I've said before, but I think that really when you're looking at Obadiah, once you've struggled with looking at historical context and meaning and realize that we cannot resolve a lot of issues, we can still look at the primary purpose of the book, which is frankly not very different than any of the other minor prophets, and even the major prophets, is that God is faithful, God is a just God that expects you to do right, and when you don't, whether you're Edom or whether you're Judah, you're going to be judged by it, and those of you who are faithful to the end, you will be a remnant that God will preserve. And so if that happens in the book of Obadiah, if God is the same God that he is, was 2,500 years ago, you can expect the same thing now, although it may not be in the timing that you like.
1: Dr. Mark Chavales, thank you again for your time. You can find out more about him in our show notes. You can find out about his courses on the Logos Mobile Ed curriculum. And you can also find all sorts of things that he's published from InterVarsity Press and other publications. Mark, thanks again for your time and look forward to talking to you very soon about the book of Micah.
0: in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.